Welcome to The Last Geek in Space, the podcast where we place comic book creators into a rocket ship and blast them into space with nothing but artwork and magazines for company. This issue, Doctor Who, Dower Devil, Gambit Secret Origin, The Space Race, and artist and writer Mike Collins. Hi Mike, welcome to um, The Last Geek in Space. We're going to send you into the great unknown with nothing but comic books and artwork for company and have a little chat about your amazing career. That It's stunning some of the stuff you've done. I'd forgotten how much, like X-Men, first appearance of Gambit, early Doctor Who stories, present day Doctor Who stories, 2000 AD. And I won't mention the Tom Waits tribute. <laughs> but... Uh, but we're going to take you back. What we do is we'll go back and look at your career, but we'll also get you to pick your favourite comics and artwork that's inspired you. First question's always, the first comic you really remember that meant something when you were young? Yeah, for me, the first comic that I remember reading was The Sparky, the companion to um, Beano and the Dandy. Um, and I, I liked it more than the Beano and the Dandy because it seemed to be a bit more anarchic. Uh, the strip, yeah, uh, things like Spy versus Spy, and uh, uh, I Spy, sorry, not Spy versus Spy. That's mad. But I, I Spy and stuff like that. I just thought was fantastic, and I just completely bowled over by it. And it was like you, you got the sense that it wasn't quite acceptable. <laughs> I remember Spark. It's more like the kids used to sit on the back row rather than the front row kids. That's it. Something a bit, yeah, yeah. Your nan wouldn't like it. <laughs> and what about after that? Where did your comic development grow? TV Twenty One. Yeah. That was a um, TV Twenty One is the comic that um, forever for me has had me thinking that uh, Star Trek was a comic strip that got turned into a TV show because TV Twenty One had the rights to Star Trek before it was on British TV. Yeah, so the comic strip ran yeah. for a few weeks and then was on TV. And because I'd seen Batman and Batman was a comic turned into a TV show, I assumed the same thing from Star Trek. So whenever I draw a Star Trek comic, as far as I'm concerned, I'm taking it back to its roots. <laughs> And didn't they, if I remember rightly, didn't some of those original comics get done without the writers or the creators ever having seen the American TV show? Well, that's it, because it hadn't been finished TV at all, so they had no idea. So yeah. Early episodes had the Enterprise landing on planets. That's right. It's amazing now. Yeah, they, they were brilliant. And how about from um, as an artist? Were you drawing from an early age and writing? Or? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think I did my own version of Sparky when I was about nine. Yeah. So I just filled exercise books up, and um, all the way through school, yeah. I just had you know uh, Maple Leaf exercise books that I just filled with comic strips. It never occurred to me the line pa- the lines on the page were a bad thing, but I just drew on drew in them. When you um, started out in the business, what was your first professional job? This this is ridiculous. My, my first professional job was actually uh, a Daredevil parody written by Alan Moore. Oh, was it Daredevil? The man with that sense of humor. That was brilliant. Yeah, I didn't know that was your first yeah. gig. I love that story. Yeah, I, I've been doing fanzine strips in Masters of Infinity, um, which I've been writing and drawing. And what I hadn't realised as a as a, a newbie writing and drawing stuff is, if you set a cliffhanger up, it was a really good idea to work out what happened next in the cliffhanger. <laughs> so I'd ripped myself into this ridiculous corner, and I'd been running for a while. So me and Mark Farmer, who was inking me on that, um, we'd started getting a bit of attention which is nice. Um, and uh, Alan, I met Alan Moore at a comics convention, I think it was in London, and um, he said he'd been reading 
the the Moon Knight strip in Fancy Advertiser. And um, he really wanted to know what happened next. And I said, well, I'd like to know what happened next as well, because I'm, I'm lost. And being the cheeky bugger I was, and not thinking that this was a bad thing to do, I said to Alan, do you want to write the ending? And uh, he laughed, and I thought, oh, what, what have I done? And a few days later, I got this um, massive Alan Moore script. For It's like about 12 pages long for a four-page comic strip that he wrote to finish off my story. <laughs> Oh, wow. <laughs> and um, after that, he sort of, uh, him and um, Dave Gibbons and a few others were sort of pushing for me and Mark to get work in British comics. And uh, he'd written uh, this Daredevil parody and taken it into Bernie Jay, who was the editor of Marvel UK at the time, and said, Mark's drawing this. And um, yeah. that, that's how I got the job. <laughs> Bernie was great. I worked with her. Uh... Back in the nineties, when she was back there for a while. All right. So, what happened after Dower Devil? After Dower Devil, I did a, a four-page story which I wrote and drew about um, that. Uh, it was like a, a caper comic strip, science fiction caper comic strip, where uh, the most valuable thing in the universe in the future is the first edition of Spider-Man. And it's about getting that stolen, and um, it's all narrated from the viewpoint of the, the, the basically the Otis character. So instead of the genius running it, it's the Otis character. And uh, the idea is that he's become his anchor in time. And he's gone back into the past so that when the mastermind has stolen this copy of Spider-Man, um, he goes back to whatever point in time the Otis character's in. So he eludes the space police, the science police, the time police, whatever. <coughs> and um, he's home free. So the, they decide to meet up at uh, Stonehenge way back in the past because it's something that's there. It's, it's a fixed point in time for, for yeah. centuries. Uh, but the Otis character gets so knackered, he ends up leaning on Stonehenge. And so when the guy appears, his arm's sticking out of the rock, just holding his copy of Spider-Man. <laughs> and they let me do that. So <laughs> that's, quite, that's um, around the time Lou Stringer did his first strip for, I think it was for Mighty World of Marvel as well. Now, Lou always says that me and him have the same secret origin, because Alan got him work there as well. Ah, Okay. So I always yeah. remember that. Was it his first gag was Iron Man? Was Iron Man, I think. Iron Man, who wasn't Iron? <laughs> so um, we're going to load you up in this spaceship, imaginary spaceship with um, a right. bunch of comics. And if you had to take one single issue with you, what would that be? Oh, God. Um, I, I'm try, I've been trying to think on this because this is a ridiculously hard question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, it's... Is it is it the the first comic I remember buying? Is it one that's meant something to me over the years? Is it one I go back and reread a lot? Um, I'm really not sure. I suspect if I could get away with doing a collection, it'd be um, the Andy Helfer and um, Garcia Lopez Deadman miniseries. Okay, we'll give you that because that is a beautiful piece. Um, I, it's the sort of art we give. Um, it's the same with a lot of artists. You ask them about artists that they adore. It's Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, and whenever there's a Garcia Lopez comic out, I always buy two or three copies of it because I know <laughs> I'm going to tear at least one of them to pieces. Just go through it, just checking it out. Yeah, well, I was in Spain a few years back, and I found out they did large editions of uh, Twilight and Cinder and Ash, so I picked those up out there. So I have multiple copies of um, 
all these comics. I can't read them, but I'm just looking at the pictures. So <laughs> that's how most comic fans. There's a lot of comic writers and artists started just rewriting stories when they were three or four years old. Yeah, you know, they were too young to read. Yeah, but they remember making up their own stories to go with the artwork. Yeah. Um. Well, you might have just answered it, but we'll let you have a graphic novel as well as the collection. Oh, okay. Well, I'm I'm down to two on that. It's either um, End of the Trail, which is a blueberry graphic novel, yeah, by Mebius, uh, which is just one of the single most beautiful comics ever drawn, or Asterix in Britain. And I think I'm going to go with Asterix. Because... <laughs> I love Asterix, but what fascinates we've had now is we've had a few people on this show, right? Comic fans seem to de- divide between Asterix fans and Tintin fans, yeah. And I'm definitely an Asterix yeah. fan. I didn't mind Tintin. But I can reread Asterix and love Asterix, whereas I just think Tintin, you know, I can appreciate it, but I don't have the love for it. I, you know. Yeah. I, oh, no, it's not embraceable, is it? It's No. You appreciate it rather than embrace it. I've got friends with the other way. They just adore everything yeah. Tintin-related. Oh. So tell me about, I know you went from, um, well, you did a lot of work for Marvel UK then, didn't you, after breaking yeah. in there and um, did a Spider-Man story and, yeah. Was it like the droids and stuff like that? Not the droids, all the little British-made comics at the time. Zoids. That's it. Well, I, uh, it was lucky for me and a few other guys like um, Barry Kitson and Jeff Anderson is that we came along at a period where what Marvel UK needed was people who could draw. It wasn't necessarily they could draw the best, yeah. just that they, they needed artists, and they also needed writers as well. So a lot of the toy tie-in stuff I, I, I wrote – so there's a lot of stuff I wrote, a lot of stuff I drew. I didn't often write and draw the material. Yeah. Uh, but it was it was a good experience. And it was at the point where the toy companies had realized that one really useful marketing tool was comic books. Yeah. So they were basically putting yeah. money into the comic book. Well, like Simon with Transformers. Oh, God, yeah. You know, you know, Simon's the Transformer king yeah. after editing the title. But then you went to America as well and, like, I love the fact that, I mean, you did, a, was it a few X-Men comics, but you did one with a, yeah. you know, most uh, sought-after X-Men comics of modern times with the first uh, Gambit appearance. Yeah. Yes, I did. Um, um, that was weird. I'd been doing some backups in classic X-Men where they'd rerun the old issues and then they'd have a little story in the back. And um, the ones I did, uh, Chris had been writing those, and Bob Harris, who's the editor, um for whatever reason, at that point, they decided the X-Men was going to come out every two weeks over the summer. So they needed extra artists on it. And because Bob had liked what I'd done on the backups, he said, do you want to draw the regular book? I mean, yes, I wanted to draw the X-Men. It was my favorite comic from when I was about 14. I mean, I did, yes, I had to do it. Um, and what was wild about that was that uh, I had I did two, two issues of the X-Men, regular X-Men. I did X-Men 264 which I had a good month on. I could spend a lot of time and just, you know, get in there and do the X-Men, just do the best thing I could do on it. And then I had X-Men 266, which I had to turn around in about uh, 10 days because Chris was late with the script. And um, at the time, and this is way before the internet, um, in, my, in the village where I live, uh, there used to be a copy shop and it was the only fax, or the only fax in the village. <laughs> So I had to make an appointment to be down there at three o'clock in the afternoon, and they faxed me through the script because there wasn't even enough time for them to FedEx it over. And uh, along with the fax of the script was this really rough, sharpie marker sketch 
by Jim Lee of this new character Gambit. So it's a rough Sharpie marker sketch, and it's been faxed. And so I swear to God, half of Gambit's costume is me sort of squinting at this drawing, trying to work out what's come through the fax machine. <laughs> and it's just like, you know, I've, I've, 10 days, I've done it, I've sent it off. You know, oh, it's terrible. You know, um, it, the the book looked okay, it was fine, it went off there. And as you say, it's the, the, the only comic I've ever drawn that's actually worth any money at all. <laughs> um, one of our stranger questions now, we have where you're stuck on the spaceship and you can take one imaginary character with you that you'll get on with in the spaceship. It can be from anything, fantasy, comics, right. and a character you'd really hate to be stuck on a spaceship with. Uh, well, the one I'd hate is Deadpool. I, I, I cannot, cannot take Deadpool at all. Yeah. I uh, don't understand the appeal of the character. He's like a really bad version of Ambush Bug, but with guns. And it's just like, no, no, I just don't get it. At all. I've, I've tried re- and I've made a point of buying the, the collections that have come out, just so I'm going, okay, I've got to see what it is about this character I'm not getting. And I've spent God knows how much on these collections, and I still don't get what it is about the character. But, you know, it's uh, it's money for everyone, <laughs> money for the publishers. Um, character I'd like to be. Jeff Hawke. Yeah. British newspaper strip. Because as a kid, I just loved that. And it was just the idea of this, this guy. There's obviously just this bloke in space. And, uh, and particularly since we're on a spaceship, having somebody that's as experienced in space is probably a really good one to have. Yeah. That, so I, I never got on my dad. And there was before my time. But Jeff Hawke, I loved it. Um, now, one of the things, I was just, when I've been preparing for this, I've been obviously checking out your past. And I keep remembering stuff that I remember seeing you drew. And I kind of, Forgot about it a bit, but he did the laser eraser story in press button. Yeah, which two of my favourite characters from Warrior magazine. Oh, I, I, I love them because I'd been going to the uh, Westminster Hall Marts, yeah. which were on every two months in London, and getting to meet various people in the British comics industry and go drinking with them, which is always a very good thing. <laughs> um, I got to know Steve Moore as well as Alan Moore, and Steve offered me the chance to draw laser eraser and press button when the comic moved over to Eclipse in America because Steve Dillon had moved on to other things. And um, I actually got um, the, the nod off Steve Dillon as well, which was, as a younger artist, was just, you know, really appreciated. Yeah. Uh, I love the characters. I'd, I'd draw them again tomorrow. We're going to give you something you might like now, a page by any comic book artist, a page of original artwork by any comic book artist to take with you. Just one page. Oh... It might be a page of Blueberry. Okay. I mean, I, I love, I love Mebus's stuff. I still think his best artwork is on the Blueberry strip, and it probably a page from um, End of the Trail or Broken Nose, because the the character rendering and the background rendering, everything about it was just beautiful artwork, and I'd just have that and just stare at it all day. <laughs> um, how about a favourite cover? Oh. Um, I thought about this a while, and there's there's loads of comics I, I love the covers of that, that have particular significance to me. But I think the one, the one, in, if in terms of a grail piece of artwork, it's the uh, Man Thing cover of the Micronauts, okay, by Mike Golden, because that is just a gorgeous piece. Of artwork. Mike Golden's a really underrated artwork artist, isn't he? Really, I know he wasn't at the time, but he's. Doesn't seem to have the respect he deserves. No, 
he's amazing. Everything he did was brilliant. And um, the Micronauts is, you know, there's first, was it 12 issues to do that? That's incredible. I mean, it, it's that sort of thing that he was doing a toy tying comic and he just did this fabulous yeah. artwork on it that was well above it needed to be. And uh, uh, gorgeous. <laughs> so there's some echoey thing. It sounds like a Dalek now and again on the sound. <laughs> well, in this studio, entirely possible. I'll blame it on Gallifrey. <laughs> yeah. Well, oddly enough, um, I just got about to ask you about your Doctor Who works. You started um, writing and drawing Doctor yeah. Who strips, didn't you? Did the art come first? Or was, no. I'm not um, sure which. When I was working on Doctor Who, I was actually writing for John Ridgway. Okay. If you've got John Ridgway drawing your strip, you don't want to draw it. You, you, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, it looks way better than you could do. No, it's fantastic. And you've carried on. I know nowadays, well, recently you were doing the storyboards for the TV show as well as some of the comics. Yeah. Uh, I, I came on board with the TV show about halfway through Peter Capaldi's first season. And I've sort of stayed with it ever since. And that's great. I've got to say, getting to draw pictures of Daleks is fantastic. Getting to draw pictures of Daleks and then they move the actual Daleks into those positions yeah. is something else entirely. <laughs> It's fabulous. I, I bumped into Stephen Moffat in the uh, reception of uh, BBC Wales, and uh, he said, are, are you enjoying it? I went, you're paying me to be a seven-year-old, yes. <laughs> Have you done other storyboard work as well, haven't you, though, I think? Yeah. Quite a lot. What other shows have you worked on? Uh, Good Omens. Um, oh. his, his Dark Materials, that's the big one that sort of we've finished season two of that. Um, that's right. I've done a show called Discovery of Witches, which actually is great fun. Um, I've done various TV shows that nobody's probably watched. Um, there's one really daft one that was done for one of the random ITV channels, um, which was uh, Houdini and Doyle. Uh, Harry Houdini teams Arthur Conan Doyle to fight crime. <laughs> it's great. It's, it's beautifully stupid. <laughs> that sounds a good show. And you've also illustrated a Dalek story as well, didn't you? From the first Do uh, Doctor Who graphic novels, I think. The, I've done two, two Dalek graphic novels, yeah. Okay. I've done straight for BBC. Yeah. Um, they, they'd wanted to do their own graphic novels that were independent of that, and they, they had the rights to the Daleks. So um, they got Justin Richards in to write it, and because I've been drawing the comic at the time, they lured me over. Uh, tell us a bit about your work for DC Comics as well, because I know you've done loads of stuff for them over the years. For DC Comics? Um, yeah. I, because I'd drawn Laser, Razor, and Press Button, um, it turned out that Jeanette Kahn was a fan of the characters. Who knew? And uh, she said, oh, you draw that. Do you want to come and work for me? And I went, yes, yes, I do. Thank you. <laughs> and I, I got to draw some uh, Flash and Teen Titans work for DC. And I'd heard they got the rights to the TSR properties, all sort of Dungeon and Dragon stuff. I said, oh, I'd love to have a go at that. And they said, oh, but you're a superhero artist. And I sent him in the artwork I'd done for Slain for 2008. And they said, oh, you can do Sword and Sorcery. And so I ended up doing that for a few years then for them. And as that was petering out, I asked if I could move back over to the superhero stuff. And they went, no, you're a sword and sorcery artist. <laughs> I was going to say, I got the stuff, uh, I got to do superhero work for DC after that point because Marvel had hired me to draw the X-Men. And DC went, oh, you draw superheroes. 
So I got to uh, write and draw Peter Cannon Thunderbolt for them. And then I did uh, Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman and all, all the big guns. Um, we're going to give you a geek-related object to take into space with you. Oh, it could be any object that means something, really, but um could be geek-related. And uh, What would you want to take? Uh, I think it's going to be the, um, the shelf full of geeky stuff. Uh, the, the Hot Toys Captain America figure, the, the Captain America first event, okay. which I just, I mean, I love the the outfit in the movie, and of all the Hot Toy figures that I've seen, that's the one that just, yeah, it means something. It's great. So I'll, I'll take, I'll take him um, to me. Oh, cool! And it will give you someone to talk to. Yeah. <laughs> um, like most comic fans, you're a big music fan as well, and um, if you had to take one song with you, what would that be? Oh God! Um, single song, uh, sexual healing in Marvin Gaye. Any special reason? It's just a perfect signal in terms of because there's loads of music. I love loads of music, loads of different types of music. But that for me, just I think it probably came out at just the right time when I was a teenager. So it just had that sort of a bit of weight to it, and it's um, I still think it's a fabulous piece of work. So yeah, there you go. That's cool. And um, how about a novel or a book? Um, Sirens of Titan by Kurt Vonnegut. I love Vonnegut. Uh, well, I tell you what, I have had so many copies of Sirens of Titan that I keep giving them away to people. So it's just like, you've, you've got to read this book, you've got to read this book. And uh, I never get them back. Um, it, what I love about the book is that it actually tells you in the first couple of chapters exactly how it's going to end. And then when it does, it's a complete surprise. Yeah. It's uh, I mean, I, I love all of Vonnegut, but that particularly for me is just brilliant. So um, how about a movie as well to pass the time while you're in space? It's got to be Blade Runner. Um, the film I've watched the most, and every time I watch it, it's a different movie. But which? Oh, the the, um, the final version, the final cut. Yeah. Um, I've still got a fondness for the original because I remember seeing that when it came out. But um, I think the final cut sort of does wonders with it, and it gets rid of the one bit that always struck a dull note with me, which is when the dove takes off and goes off into the blue sky. It just takes you out of the movie completely. So, got a strange question coming up that I like. Um, as you're travelling through space in the ship, being a Doctor Who fan, you'll appreciate this. You're going to get caught up in a time vortex and a black hole, and just be shunted to any place, any point in space and time that you want to go. It can be ancient Britain. It could be um, Jerry Anderson territory. Anywhere you want. Where would you want to go? Uh, Kirk's Enterprise. But would you have a red shirt on? No. <laughs> I'd be blue shirt, definitely. Stay in the back, do the, do the medical and science stuff, yeah. <laughs> I think it's good to do it that, Pete. I wouldn't want to go to Picard's sort of Star Trek era. No. It's getting a bit too dark, then. <laughs> that was a – I mean, I enjoyed the show at the end, but, yes, it got very, very, very dark, yeah. You've also talked about Star Trek. You've actually done a lot of TV time comics over the years as well. Um Including some, was it the Babylon Five? It was official Babylon Five? Was it? Yeah, it was written. It was um, actually meant to be uh, a missing episode from Series Four of Babylon Five. Yeah, that uh, JMS had plotted out, and then they didn't have the budget to do it. So it's going to be what what had happened to Babylon Four, the, the final story of Babylon Four, and also tied up all of Sheridan's story as well. So it was a great script. I mean, the first issue was based on um, like the first act of the teleplay 
And that's what I got was the first act of the teleplay. It wasn't written as a comic script at all. So I then had to sort of translate it into comics. So, you know, I've been getting all these pans and dollies and what have you. I'm just thinking, yeah, and I draw that how? <laughs> Extreme pullbacks. Like, no, because this is on page. Um, parts two and three were written by Peter David over uh, JMS's plot. So they're a bit more conventional comic stuff. So, But that was great to do. And uh, apparently, because it was done for Warner's Comics, which was yeah. the, at that point the West Coast version of DC, and uh, they they actually took my pages down to the set and showed them to the actors to see if they liked them or not, which is a bit intimidating. <laughs> yeah. yeah, luckily they did. So. And what are you working on now? I know you've just finished the well, it's about a year ago now. You finished a great book about the moon landings. Oh, that was brilliant! I love doing that. Yeah. Um, what am I doing at the moment? Uh, I'm, I'm working on a couple of TV shows. Yeah. Um, one of which I can't talk about because I signed NDAs on it. Um, uh, but it, it's, 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 it's a reasonably big show. That's all I'll say. Um, for one of the streaming services. Um, I've done some work for 2008 D, working with James Peaty. We, he sort of got in touch with me and said, do you want to draw something? And I said, yes. What do you want to draw? We bounced backwards and forwards of things I really wanted to draw and he wanted to write. And we sort of, we've knocked up a, a three-parter, a, a thriller for 2008 which I'm working on when I'm not doing storyboarding. And that that's great. But the big thing for me this year, um, I finally got to work on one of my childhood heroes. And it's stuff that's coming out sometime in the summer, so hopefully not now. Um, and I'm pretty sure you're not going to be able to guess what it is. Um, Any ideas? Jeff Hawk? Um, I'm going to have no idea. It's Desperate Dan. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm now drawing Desperate Dan for, the, for Dandy Annuals and Specials. Oh, brilliant. It's great. I, it's, I actually feel really at home drawing it as well. So I think one of the things about my artwork is, for the, for the most part, every assume it's because I've done a lot of TV stuff, that I tend towards the realistic. But actually, I always regard myself as being a cartoonist that can do realistic stuff. So getting to draw Desperate Dan, which is probably the most realish of all the um, DC Thompson characters, sort of suits me. Yeah. Um, and I'm really enjoying it. So, yeah, Desperate Dan. Dandy annual this summer. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. You should make yourself a pie to celebrate. <laughs> yeah. Just uh, while we head towards the end, um, we're just going to well look back at your career and pick out something that's um, the work you're most proud of so far. Ooh. Um, the first Judge Dread thing I did was for a summer special, which was the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, and I spent forever drawing that, and Mark Farmer did just fabulous things on it. And that that's always one of those strips i'll look back at and think i got it there i got it right you know that was lovely um uh, you mentioned apollo i think apollo which i managed to sort of fitting over about the course of a year or so in between working on tv shows um really proud of that uh, what, what happened with apollo is that uh matt and chris that had written the script had met with me at um, a london supercom and asked me if i'd read through the script and give them some notes on it and i said well you know i don't take on projects people walk up with i, I can't do that and I read the script, and about 3 o'clock in the morning, I sent them an email just yeah. saying, yeah, I'm drawing it. Um, this is great. Uh, and it was brilliant. And Self-Made Hero, the publisher, did a brilliant job on it. Absolutely fantastic. And um, and I got uh, Ian Sharman's lettering. is fantastic. And Chris Carter 
and Jason Cardi's colours are just beautiful. The whole book, really, really pleased with it. I think that, that that's one of my high points. No, that's a great book. Um, no, I'm really, really pleased with that. And the, the, I think the Christmas Carol I did as well about 10 years ago. Oh, Lord, 13 years ago. There we go. Um, I was really pleased with that as well. because I've been drawing Doctor Who continuously for the comic for a few years and needed a break because it was really intense turning stuff around. And I got off classical comics off of me, uh, Christmas Carol. I thought, right, I'll just I'll do that for a bit because that won't be as much, you know, intense daily pressure. But uh, I ended up sort of uh, working on that over the course of a year as well. So that was like a solid thing on that. Um, but I, I think that came out great. And that had um, Dave Roach's inks on it, and he did. Uh, I love it. So. Um, last question um, family and friends aside what would you miss about Earth that's an interesting question what would I miss about Earth going to an Indian restaurant that is a good call I'm really missing that at the moment yeah <laughs> luckily round by here we've got one that delivers so we, we had that the other week and that was great but you know just wonderful <laughs> But it's a whole experience being a big gang here and drinking the Cobra beer and just sort of sampling everybody else's food. Ah, it's great. Yeah, I miss that. Maybe maybe they deliver to you in space. Gel Freezy in space. That'd be good. That's a great name for a comic, actually. Gel Freezy in space. Okay. There you go. <laughs> Start writing it. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so thanks a lot. And, um, yeah, enjoy your trip into space. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for having me. Or sending me, whatever you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> You've been listening to The Last Geek in Space. Thanks to Mike Collins for appearing and Paul Morris and Vegetables at Last for the Music. The Last Geek in Space is a Bullpen Productions creation. For more information, check out bullpenproductions.co.uk and alancouncil.com. And while you're there, buy my books. Step off the landmount. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Try it from the top. I'm still. Well, you hear me now?